Good evening and welcome to Night Templar, episode 42. Uh, this is part three of the relevance of the Bible. Now we're just going to jump right in. Uh, yesterday uh, we had, the uh, past couple of days, we've had some uh, long uh, discussion and reading. It's not really a discussion, just me uh, uh, going through this book, uh, The Relevance of the Bible by H.H. H. Rowley. And uh, we're going to do part three today, this evening. Um, I'm just going to jump right in. This one's called The Unity of the Bible, part three. Um, it is sometimes said that God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament, and that it would be a gain to the church if the Old Testament were removed from its Bible. Modern study of the Old Testament is not seldom blamed for this, but the idea is more is much more ancient than modern scholarship. In the second century of the heretic uh, Marcion uh, adopted this view and wrote a book to prove that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New have nothing in common. On the other hand, Old Testament scholars would reject it without hesitation and any contemporary tendency to adopt it is, it is found uh, outside their ranks. Uh, that the process of inspiration is fundamentally the same in the two testaments had have been maintained above, and it has been assumed that the uh, source of that inspiration is both, and both is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, imperfectly known in the Old Testament. Indeed, though ever seeking to reveal himself to men imperfectly revealed in Christ, in uh, Many years, it has uh, been rather in a missionary circles amongst the scholars that the abolition of the Old Testament has been canvassed. To put the Old Testament in the hands of converts and from non-Christian religions and teach them the older view of inspiration is fraught with peril and apt to produce what have been called, quote, Old Testament Christians, unquote. Uh, to impart a sounder view of the Old Testament has seemed to some some uh, a harder task than to banish the Old Testament from the Bible. This consideration has been uh, reinforced by specious plea that each land, the religion classic of the country, should replace the Old Testament as more fitting introduction to the gospel that the religious quality and value of the teachings of non-Christian religions find a fuller appreciation in the church than formerly is well known. We do not today regard all founders of such religions as impostors, but recognize a measure of divine revelation in them. The one eternal God was seeking to reveal himself there as well as in Israel and in the measure of men's spiritual capacities, receptiveness, and response. He was ever giving himself to them. We recognize that, we, who have but imperfectly entered into the rich inheritance which is ours, have little cause to speak with disrespect of those who often notably enlarge the meager, meager inheritance which they receive. But this should not lead to such confusions of thought as lies behind the suggestion that non-Christian scriptures should be substituted for the Old Testament. 
the New Testament sprang out of the Old, and the Old formed the Bible of the Church before there was a New Testament. Indeed, the Old Testament formed the Bible of our Lord himself, whose own familiarity with it would not suggest that to him it was a negligible work. The Old Testament provided a pre preparation for the New along a continuous line, but between the non-Christian scriptures and the New Testament, there is a complete hiatus that cannot be got rid of by idle credence. Uh, the one does lead to Christ, who simply cannot be understood without it, while the other do not lead to him at all. Christianity is not based on myth or speculation. It's not a philosophy or a cultus alone. It is rooted in history, in the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth, a historical character who lived in particularly in, in a particular land at a particular point of history. He entered into the traditions of his people, shared their life, their thought, their worship. And though he brought a, new, a great new religious impulse, continuity, continuity with all with the old as well as breach with the old mark mark for the soil of judaism christianity sprang and neither christ nor his teachings can be understood save in relation to the old testament when the fullness of the time was come says paul god sent forth his son born of woman born under the law galatians it is common to observe that the Roman Empire, with its internal peace and centralized administration and, and Greek culture, with its wide diffusion throughout the Mediterranean region, provided an unparalleled opportunity for the early spread of the gospel. Had that been all that was needed, Jesus might just as well have been born in Athens or in Rome, and their religions have provided the background of the gospel. It was not an accident, however, that he was born a Jew, as though, as those who think that any religion can form uh, an equally relevant introduction to the New Testament would seem to imply. Um, he was born a Jew because the whole history of Israel was a preparation for him, and because the religion of Judaism alone provided the, the inheritance he needed. In the preceding chapter, Jesus has been uh, born. Jesus has been more than once referred to in as a effulgence of God's glory and as a supreme revelation of God. There was also another side of his ministry. He was the revealer of God and equally the redeemer of man. He revealed God in himself. He redeemed man in his word but christ and his word are not separate and distinct for in his word, he himself and in him god stood supremely unveiled it was christ crucified crucified who who laid bare to the mortal eye of the heart of god it was the christ crucified who wrought redemption for man and for the both of these sides of his ministry alike reaching their climax in one moment of his death. The Old Testament provided the essential preparation. In Jesus Christ, God clothed himself with mortality. 
he that hath seen me hath seen the Father, said John. While the revelation of God in Christ is unique in its fullness, it finds abundant preparation in the thought of the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord clothed itself with Gideon, Judges. And judges. Here Gideon is conceived of a soul possessed by the Spirit of God that for the moment his activity is ascribed to God. Again and again and again. We read the Spirit of God coming upon men with its imperious constraint, making them the instrument of his will and the vehicle of his message. That man is an other than God lies deep at the root of it all. Old Testament teachings, but alongside it lies the profound conviction that man is also akin to God, so that in the in, indissoluble unity of singular personality, God could make himself known the other than man revealing himself in man. It is not to be supposed, however, that In the Old Testament, thought any man was ever what Jesus is in the thought of the New Testament. There we find the preparation for him, not peril, not perils to him. For when uh, in the Old Testament thought God clothed himself with a man, it was for a limited time and for the limited object. It was rather God possessing a man to make him, to make him his instrument than uh, finding in the personality the fitting garment of his own spirit. In Jesus Christ, God wrought redemption for man. Quote, he shall save his people from their sins, unquote, Matthew. To you is born this day a savior, Luke. The redemption is convinced, is conceived of uh, as achieved by the death of Christ. Ye, quote, this is ye were redeemed not with corruptible things, but with precious blood, even the blood of Christ, unquote, as first Peter's. Um, again, there is no parallel in the Old Testament, but there is an abundant preparation for the Old Testament proclaims that God is a redeeming God and recognizes that man's supreme need is a deliverance from sin. Israel believed that God was saving God, but not because some thinker evolved uh, the conception of from his uh, fetile, fertile mind, but because he had revealed himself in their history as a saving God. He had chosen Israel when Israel was weak and in bondage, and he sent Moses down to Egypt in his name to lead them forth. By them and through all of the, their history, they could not forget it. That deliverance was regulated for of all their thinking of God. They believed that he was the controller of history just because it was in history that he had revealed his character to them. They believed that he was the controller of nature just because he had used nature as an instrument of that deliverance. In the subsequent history, God shows himself a saving God repeatedly and uses both nature and men in whom his spirit is to effect deliverance. But if, but if physical and national deliverance marked the beginnings of their relationship with God, they rose to the perception of the need for something deeper. The prophets 
as has been said, thought, and patriotism and in other political terms, to them, inner uh, worth of greater moment than outer glory. And the supreme need of the nation was for purity of faith and life, for the righteousness of God to roll as a mighty river through all life of the nation. Amos. Nor was this thought characteristic of the prophet's loan. It lies in the heart of all the ritual of the post-exilic days, for it uh, has ceased to be fashionable to pour contempt on the post-exilic days, period, as one of the decadence uh, sterile forms in contrast to the creative creativeness of the prophets. It is uh, realized today that it was in the post-exilic period that the prophetic books were compiled Though much of the material they contain goes back to the pre-exilic days, but the men who collected and edited their writings were men who honored the prophets, and by their ritual they deserved and conserved the work of the prophets and keep the faith of Israel, purer than against which what which the prophets had pro protested. And in their ritual they sought to embody the principles uh, that were so vital to the prophets. The prophets had... Uh, he claimed against sacrifices that were not the expression of loyalty of men's hearts to their God and his will. The ritual of post-exilic days sought to make sacrifice the vehicle of faith and the instrument to purification in their lives of the people. The ethical teaching of the prophets were reflected in some of the many sides of the conception of sin. That the thought of sacrifice and its efficacy with so many cited needs, no, and it needed no demonstration, and it lies beyond our immediate field in the to an, an, analyze it. You know, the variety of the elements uh, entered into it suffice it to observe that deeply ingrained in the post-exilic uh, thought is a need of the sinner for cleansing, and the conception of the sacrifice is able to cleanse his conscience. It is thought of sin as creating a gulf between man and God and a sacrifice bridging the gulf and the cleansing of the sinner, which prepared the way for the redemption wrought in Christ. Sacrifice sacrifice was man's offering to God to achieve his redemption from his profoundest need. But from our from old, old Israel's Redeemer was her God. When these two thoughts became fused together, they yielded the conception of sacrifice, which should not be alone, man's offering to God, but equally God's act whereby he who had saved her from Egypt should save her from deeper need. And that conception we find in the New Testament thought of Christ. The two testaments are, are one. Therefore, not in the sense that they duplicate a single message were that the uh, case, were that the case either could be dispensed without serious loss. They are one in the sense in which parts of musical cadence are one. Without the final chord, it is incomplete in the process that does not reach its goal. On the other hand, the final chord, however beautiful it may be as a chord, is robbed of its full significance without the chords that should precede it. The two testaments are one and in that together they form a single whole. To vary the figure while still finding it in its music, the New Testament is the final movement of the sonata 
gathering up in its uh, recapulation the strains of the exposition, but making them new by weaving them afresh and adding to them and fully intelligible only in the light of what has gone before it. As an instance of uh, reweaving the strands, we may take three, which in the Old Testament are separate and distinct, which in the New Testament are blended in a unity with the consequent uh, modification of all. In, in 2 Samuel, uh, we are told that the prophet Nathan bore to David the promise, quote, thine house and thy kingdom shall be made sure forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Unquote. This thought of the enduring glory of the house of David entered deeply into the heart of Israel. And when Hosea uh, predicted the end of the northern kingdom, he promised that after interval that David monarchy should be restored in Hosea, but with its characteristical individualization capacity, Hebrew thought consecrated on a single figure who should gather into himself this glory of the Davidic line and whose reign should be worldwide and eternal. Quote, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and the peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with the judgment and with the righteousness from henceforth ever and ever. Isaiah, it, it, it's uh, to be observed that while it is clear that the earthly political kingdom is envisioned at the base of the conception uh, was something nobler than a crude nationalism, it was to be a rule that should uh, ensure universal peace and justice amongst men. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and the righteousness shall be a girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. And the wolf shall dwell in the lamb with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. They shall not hurt nor destroy in any in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It was around uh, the term Messiah that all this thought crystallized into later Judaism of the uh, intertestamental period through the term is not characteristic of the Old Testament usage. And in the days of Jesus, the advent of the Davidic Skian uh, was eagerly awaited. The book of Daniel presents us with a fundamentally different conception of the coming age of righteousness. Uh, and, uh, in a particular chapter, the author uh, describes under the figure of four beasts rising out of the sea, uh, four successive earthly empires, followed by their destruction and uh, settings up of the new enduring kingdom that should embrace within its bounds all nations. The coming kingdom is symbolized by a human figure, one like unto a son of man. In contrast to the beast that could alone uh, fittingly symbolize their own kingdoms and it was representative 
as coming with the clouds of heaven instead of arising out of the sea to signify its loftier character and source. But just as the beast were figures for kingdoms, so the Son of Man was a figure for the coming of the kingdom. Hence, in the uh, interpretation of the vision, when a symbol is explained, that the, that the dominion the dominion is given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And there is no mention of any individual leader for the kingdom. The establishment of this kingdom is in no way connected with the house of David, but is thought as uh, being set up by the divine breaking into history and overthrowing all that rears itself against God, followed by the delivering of the sovereignty by God himself into the hands of saints, to saints. But again, when the inevitable individualizing tendency and before long, son of man, who at first symbolized the kingdom became thought of as a as the divinely sent leader of the kingdom and hope parallel to the Masonic uh, hope to clearly distinguishable from it, it sprang up. The Son of Man who should come with the clouds in the heavens was no scan of the house of David, who should come forth from Bethlehem and prophet. But like the Messiah, uh, he should establish a worldwide and eternal kingdom of his righteousness and sweep aside all who stood against him. So, a third conception is found in the servant songs that are found in the book of Isaiah. And uh, notably in the fourth of these areas. And these songs we have the conception of a servant of the Lord to whom should be entrusted the mission of being a light to the nations and, and of leading them to God. He is not thought of crushing those who oppose him, but as a gentle and patient under suffering. And in the final song, it is made clear that his sufferings are very bear the very instrument of his triumph. He suffers not for himself, but for others, and by means of his pains. He effects uh, atonement for their sins and so fulfills his divine mission. Here the divergence from the thought of the Messiah is much greater than the case of the Son of Man. The servant is a completely human figure called from the womb to be God's servant and in no way linked to the house of David or with the advent with clouds of heaven. There is no suggestion that he will establish a political kingdom on earth his function is solely spiritual, to send forth the light of the true religion through the earth and offer himself a sacrifice for sin and thus lead men to God. So into interminable discussions as to the identity of the servant in the author's thought, it is unnecessary to go here. Broadly, there are two schools of which uh, that the one believes that in these songs, as in the surrounding chapters, the servant is a figure for the Israelite nation, or the pure within, much as the Son of Man was originally a figure for the people of the saints of the Most High, while the other believes that the servant was in the author's thought an individual, either historical or ideal. 
I'm not, uh, I'm not persuaded that the truth lies with either school. Just as in the case of the Messiah and the Son of Man, originally, collective conception became individualized. So it's probable that here, too, the same thing happened. But here the development seems to have taken place in the writer's own thought. And while he began with the thought of Israel as God's servant, he moved on to think of an individual who should embody in himself this great mission of the servant. Especially in this, so in the fourth song, which seems to me to have an individual and not a community clearly in mind. In this, that case, the individual would be essentially an ideal figure rather than some figure of the past. That the three conceptions of the Messiah, the son of the man, and the suffering servant are separate and distinct ends at once clear. And even after they had all become individualized, they remain so. And while the conception of the work of the Messiah approximated to that son of the man, the conception of the person of the one remained quite distinct, uh, remained quite, quite distinct from that of the other. In the case of the suffering servant, both persons and work were unique in their conception. Nevertheless, these three streams of thought all came together in the New Testament, and Christ is found to be the fulfillment of the hopes that centered around him. Nor can it be doubted that Jesus Christ believed that all these hopes led to him and found in him their realization. So far as our records go, he never directly called himself the Messiah or Christ though his accusers declared that he had done so. Luke. But when he asked his disciples how they thought of him, and Peter replied, Thou art the Christ, unquote. He does not seem to have denied the identification. He did charge them not to publish the idea. In Mark, at his trial, we read, we read that the high priest asked him directly, Art thou the Christ? Unquote, question mark. And he replied, I am. This characteristic name, name himself, was Son of Man. And this we find frequently on his lips. He does not describe himself as a servant of the Lord, but there is an ample evidence that the servant's songs, and especially the fourth profoundly, affected his thought. Moreover, it is clear that in his mind, these three originally separate ideas were blended into a single idea. When the high priest asked him if he were the Christ, he immediately linked the term with that other term, the Son of Man. I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Unquote. Similarly, when Peter makes his confession, Jesus again employs the other term, but fills it with the with the content derived from the servant's song, and he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things. That's in Mark. Similarly, in Mark, uh, where the thoughts throughout is to be understood only in the light of the fourth servant song, the actual term used of Jesus is again, the Son of Man, unquote. Ye know that which are company or counted to rule over the Gentiles, Lord, it over them. Ye know that, and 
they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles, Lord, it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever so whoever so would become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever so would be the first among you shall be the slave of all. The virality, the son of man, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life for the ransom for many. That the blending of the ideas involved their mutual modification needs no demonstration. If he was the Messiah, it was not to restore the political kingdom of the house of David that he had come. If he was the son of man, the kingdom of God he had come to establish was no earthly kingdom, but one purely spiritual. It would be established not by his consuming with the breath of his nostrils all who supposed who opposed him, or should oppose him, but by the patience and the gentleness of the vicarious sufferings of the servant of the Lord. Again, in the New Testament, thought of, of the death of Christ, we find a blending of several streams of Old Testament thought. The death of Christ itself is itself unique without any parallel to the Old Testament story. Yet, every New Testament attempt to understand it and to interpret it is in terms of Old Testament thought. Jesus himself, as, as has just been said, interpreted in advance in the terms of suffering servant passage. His death was vicarious offering to God, freely offered on behalf of those at whose hands he should suffer. This alone, however, is quite inadequate to do justice to the many-sided faith of the New Testament, for Christ's death is no mere opus operatum, which automatically releases mankind from its sin by appeasing any angry deity. It is rather God's act for the removal of that which stands in the way of fellowship with himself, and the obstacle of, to fellowship is not the sullenness of God, but the sin of man. It is the manifestation of divine grace in action. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption, that is, Christ Jesus, who God set forth to be a propitiation. propitiation. Um, Romans. But the whole uh, doctrine of divine grace and divine initiative and redemption is born of the Old Testament. It was the grace of God that he chose Israel all ignorant of his name when uh, she was bound servant in Egypt and her deliverance was both initiated and effected by God alone. It was he who sent Moses to bring her out. Uh, he who brought who broke Pharaoh's proud heart and caused him to release her, and he who overwhelmed in the disaster of the Egyptians' host and brought Israel out with a high-handed and stretched-out arm. In that act, as he has been already said, Israel found the character of God revealed, and it is the same fundamental character of God which lies behind the New Testament doctrine of, of redemption. But in divine grace is the spring of redemption. It is in terms of the Old Testament sacrificial system that the cross of Christ as the organ of the redemption is interpreted. 
the author of the Epistle to the Hebrews associates it with the solemn ritual of the Day of Atonement when the high priest, quote, once in a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people, unquote, Hebrews, entered into the innermost shrine of the temple. The death of Christ is interpreted as a offering transcending that in that it did not need to be repeated from year to year, but was offered once for all. Transcending. Two, in that Christ himself constituted an offering that far suppressed, quote, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, unquote and transcended it, yet again in that he was who was sacrificed, consented to the offering, so that he became both high priest and victim. It was, uh, it has been said that the Old Testament conception of the efficacy of sacrifice was complex and not to be explained in terms of any single idea, and, that, and uh, the same is true of the New Testament, thought on the way in which Christ sacrificed of himself to God's effects man's redemption. That is, offering to God for a man by one who is himself both revelation of God and representative of man enters deeply into its thought. But it is equally an offering that effects a change in him. It does not change God's attitude in him so much as reveal the attitude but it does change man so that he becomes a new creature. Second Corinthians in Christ. Quote, How many more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Unquote. Hebrews. Uh, the rest on that uh, profound view of sin, which is found in the Old Testament, and on conception of sacrifice as the instrument its removal. On this day shall the atonement, this is quote, on this day shall the atonement be made for you to cleanse you from all your sins. Ye shall be clean before the Lord. Uh, nor does the uh, mere sacrifice effect atonement at any rate in the deeper thought of the Old Testament. The prophets, as, as has already been said, protested against hollow sacrifices which did not express the inner loyalty of the sacrificer, and there are passages outside the prophets which declare the primary importance of the inner spirit. Quote, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For Samuel, quote, the sacrifice, fact, sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. The post-exilic uh, ritual is not designed to serve people with the venial view of sin, people who sin lightly and who sacrifice carelessly, but people who validate their sacrifices by the humility and represent and repentance of their hearts and who express the sincerity of their confession of sin in their sacrifice. In this, we find preparation for the New Testament, teaching that the death of Christ through itself, uh, a sacrifice offered once 
once for all and a universal significant does not avail without faith, just as the ancient sacrifices were validated by the spirit of those on whose behalf they were offered. So, we, by repentance and faith, validate for ourselves the sacrifice of Christ. The rich inheritance of the redemption from sin in Christ awaits us to become ours when we, by faith, become one with him, identifying ourselves with him who was crucified so that his sacrifices become the vehicle of our submission to God. Quote, whom God set forth to be a propitiation to faith, and by his blood, or by good, good speed, God good speed, renders it. Unquote. Quote again, For God showed him publicly, dying as a sacrifice of reconciliation to be taken advantage of through faith. To Romans. One of the notable differences between the, religious of the, old, the religion of the Old Testament and Christianity is that the former is associated with the ritual of animal sacrifices, whereas the latter knows none. Yet, even here it will appear from uh, what has been said that there is a real unity between the Testaments and the, in that the New Testament offers Christ the satisfaction of the fundamental need to satisfy with sacrifice was designed. Israel had uh, learned that more important than sacrifice was the spirit that prompted and the end to which it was directed, so that when Christianity continued to foster that spirit and to attain that end, it, its link uh, with what had gone before was more vital than its breach from it. So it is, too, with another notable difference between Judaism and Christianity. The one is national religion, the other is a universal religion. In the post exilic period, the Jews developed the spirit of exclusiveness and sought to guard themselves as far as possible from alien contracts. Politically, the nation was not independent, save in a Maccabean, a Maccabean and Hasmonean period, and alien influences were inevitably established in their land but they thought to guard their faith from the influence and to the end of Nehemiah and Ezra opposed intermarriage with foreigners. It cannot be too strongly insisted that this did not spring from any hostility to foreigners as such or to any selfish desire to keep the blessings of their religion to themselves alone. It sprang from loyalty to their God and from the great sense of enduring worth of their religious inheritance. It was to uh, preserve their faith, not to corner their privileges that exclusiveness sprang. Any student uh, of the period will recognize that Judaism, in spite of the exclusiveness, was a great peril of extension, extinction. Aggressive alien influences pervaded the life of the nation, attended by all the glamour of the wealth and the power and the superior culture of the ruling power, and not, and not a few welcomed those influences. Fundamentally, they threatened that religion, which was Israel's noblest inheritance, wrought out in the experience of so many of her sons, and very magnitude of the threat would inevitably 
uh, drive the loyal to every greater exclusiveness and the strengthening of the walls of their faith against the world without. To sneer at their narrowness without understanding it causes, uh, is the mark of ignorance rather than enlightenment. It is wiser to acknowledge our debt to the creators of Judaism with all its hardness and narrowness and to thank God for all for those who were faithful when faithfulness was so hard. Nor must we forget that while Judaism shut out so far as it could influences that were alien to their faith, it was also, it was ever prepared to admit persons who were alien by birth, but who desired to renounce those alien influences. Um, Proselytism was a feature of Judaism as well as uh, particularism. But the proselyte had to identify himself with the Jewish people as well as with its faith, which was always primarily a nation faith, a national faith. Nor were the pros proselytes ever more than uh, numerically a few compared to, with those adherents of Judaism who were of Jewish blood. Christianity, on the other hand, from its earliest days, spread beyond the bounds of Jewish people amongst whom it took rise. It burst through the bounds of exclusiveness and carried its message message jar and wide so that the belong so before it long its inheritance of non-Jewish blood far outnumbered those of Jewish blood that this bursting of the barriers was not affected without some misgiving and questioning is clear from the records of the book of Acts. Nevertheless, it was decisively effective. And in the apostolic age, we find the point reached, which is expressed in the already quoted words of Paul. Quote, there can be neither Jew nor Greek. There can be neither bond nor free. There can be no male and female, for ye all are one in Christ Jesus. Galatians, no greater contrast can be conceived than between the two exuberant spiritual aggressivenesses of Christianity and the protective defensiveness of Jewish particularism. Nevertheless, the latter had uh, served its purpose in preparing for the former. Its leaders failed to see that it had fulfilled its mission, failed to welcome the tremendous religious impulse which Jesus brought, failed to realize that the seed which in him burst forth into new and more splendid life was that which they had diligent, so diligently preserved. Yet they had treasured in the Old Testament the promise of the establishment of the world's faith in their God for the preparation of the universal religion lies once more in the Old Testament. And the two testaments are again knit together in the unity of a single process in the formulation of a fulfillment of this great hope. In the servant's song, the mission of the servant to be achieved through suffering is described as a worldwide mission. mission. Quote, it is too light a thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the, the preserve of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles 
that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Unquote. And outside the servant song, we can find frequent expressions of the same expectation that the God of Israel will become the God of all men. Quote, Turn unto me, and, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. By myself I have sworn, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. For the earth shall be full of uh, knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Unquote. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and all shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go up and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and he will walk in his paths. Unquote. Quote, all the ends of the earth, this is from Isaiah, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Unquote. There are but a few of many passages that could be cited, passages to which the early church did not but did turn to vindicate its claim that it was the true heir heir of the Old Testament and the true heir of both the promise and the task of Judaism. Yet again, the Last Supper of Jesus and his disciples can only be understood in the light of the Old Testament, and once more we find the inner unity between hope and fulfillment. Whether the Last Supper was itself a Passover meal, as the first three Gospels say, or a meal on the day of preceding Passover, as the fourth Gospel says, it was naturally and inevitably linked with the thought of the Passover in the minds of Jesus and his disciples. The Passover was a feast remembrance of grace and God revealed in the ancient deliverance from Egypt. To them, the, this feast was the new focus of remembrance, symbolizing the new deliverance wrought by Christ. Uh, this was, quote, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me, unquote. But more than that, it was a symbol of a new covenant. Quote, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Unquote. The religion of Israel was a covenant religion established in the covenant of Sinai. And from the whole idea of the religion established in the covenant is derived from Israel. But Jeremiah had dreamed of a new covenant deeper and richer than the old covenant. A covenant whose law should be engraved not on the tables of stone, but on the living tables of men's hearts, giving rise to religion, not obedience to external ordinance, but one of deep and intimate fellowship, bringing the hearts of men into such perfect accord with the will of God that in living out the impulse of their own hearts, they would equally be obeying to him. All of these are but a few ways in which the religion of the New Testament, though in undeniably different from the religion of the Old Testament in many respects, is yet linked with the religion of the Old Testament. There's no doubt about it. Others could easily be added, and, and some will emerge below, 
moreover, it should uh, not be forgotten that the Psalms have become the vehicle of praise and prayer for the church equally with the synagogue. Nor should we forget that the vast treasury of spiritual experiences preserved in the Old Testament. To lose the Old Testament from the Bible, despite all the difficulties that attach to its understanding and interpretation, would be impoverished to ourselves immeasurably. Uh, that in practice, many people have deleted most of the Old Testament from their Bibles, but by the simple process of ignoring it may be true, but they are not the people whose faith is strong and clear. But too often those who have submitted an amiable, amiable uh, sentimentally for the religion of the New Testament, their, their abandonment of the Old Testament is carried with it the abandonment of much of the new. As it did in, in a couple of other places. And those religions fail horribly. You need the Old Testament with the New Testament. Together they are one. Well, that's it for our Part three of the relevance of the Bible for this evening. We'll do uh, part four tomorrow evening until we're completed. I'm not sure how many parts you're going to do. There, there could be more. Right now it looks like there might be six parts, but tomorrow will be part four. And of uh, of course, you know, we talk about different things. We talk about the uh, Knights Templar Order that I'm involved with. And it's a, it's a great thing. We're small, but we're trying to grow. And we are hoping that people will come join us to help spread the word of the Lord, our God, and do great mission work. Um, and it's kind of understanding, you know, people do pray and they do do other things. But being a Templar Knight or a Knight Templar is such a wonderful aspect of brotherhood, sisterhood. If you care to learn more about the Knights Templars or Templar Knights, um, you could go to our website. And that is www.americanknightstemplars.com. Um, let's let's take this. Let's we're gonna have a couple little prayers here. I, I just I just feel that. We should do something. Why do so many people resist? God? You know, he's there for us all. Let's bow our heads and say a prayer. Lord, why do so many people seem to resist your word? I'm sad that so many seem to be insensitive to spiritual matters. Why don't they acknowledge you instead of defying why can't they see you made the world and everything in it? Why won't they recognize you? Help me to share Christ with these, my friends and members of my family as I tenderly as I can, seeking a response to them in them. May I continue to take care of them and have them whether they want to have anything to do with you or not. Lord Jesus, give me your strength, your endurance, your patience, your preservation be there for them always. 
Soften their hearts, Lord. I pray to receive you soon. Amen. Um, if anybody has any prayer requests, you can uh, go to that website that I talked about. Again, I'm going to say it again, www.americannightstemplers.com. Or you can email me at davidr258 at comcast.net. If you guys have any questions, if anybody has any questions, you can email me there and ask questions. Or go to the website. There's some things there uh, that you can look at. Be more than happy to answer any questions. Um, let's let's have one more prayer, and we'll, we're going to call tonight. Uh, this will be... A little bit long, but uh, it's for revival. Lord, look from heaven, from your glory and your holiness. Look on us in your love, mercy, and power. We pray that you yourself will move and come from your home of the glory and touch our earth afresh. Convict us of our sin. May we repent deeply from our heart. Forgive us that we have pondered to the flesh. We have not called sin, sin, and have soft-pedaled it, weighing it down. May we have your view of sin, considering it as serious and that it offends you in your holiness. Forgive our indifference and unbelief, our willingness, our reluctance and distrust. Jolt us out of our complacency and preoccupation with ourselves. May we be humble and penitent, prayerful and expectant. May we be completely open to you, willing to change and be changed. May the fresh wind of your reviving break us, mold us and fill us again. May I become even more obedient to more centered on your will. In those areas of my life and our lives where I still am holding out against you, even to small extent, please may I truly accept your Lordship to make me more like our Lord Jesus Christ. We are wandering through the wilderness of life. We desperately need you to pour out your Holy Spirit to wake us up to reality. Bring life to your people. Purify your church. Cleanse us from our sin. And as we turn back to you, revive us spiritually. Refine us and purify us. Set our hearts alight again with your fire. Demonstrate even in your time, even today, even now, the victory Jesus Christ won at Calvary. May we enter into the fullness of the joy of the Lord that is rightfully ours. Feed us spiritually from your word. May we use the Bible, the sword of the Spirit, in our warfare. Reduce our caution and fears. Increase our love for your word and your world. Break into our lives, my life, with your power. Bring healing to those parts of my life that are broken out of the joint. Lord Jesus, show us your resurrection power among us. Reveal yourself outside the box of the conventional ways in which we think we might work. Break through the boundaries we have set on your activity. Surprise us with your activity. Lord, do something unexpected among us. Lord, we plead with you to do something amazing and extraordinary among us. Spirit of God, give us the burden of our souls. Lord, souls, without you are perishing. I pray right now for unsaved members of my family, friends, 
who are at this moment eternally lost, my neighbors, my colleagues at work, I pray they would all know Jesus Christ personally. May we not settle for less. May we continue to seek and be satisfied with anything less than a deeper revelation that we can experience of yourself. May your reveal not be limited to the church, but may you also open the eyes of those who do not know you and heal the hearts of those at present in Satan's power. Challenge our culture, energize us to bring renewal and reform to our entire society and nation. Lord, the nations of the world need you. This country needs you. Our community needs you. May your people serve the local communities you have put us in with renewed zeal. May you work through us to bring peace, justice, reconciliation to those who know only conflict and who are powerless and who do not know you. So we, Lord, want more of you. May your kingdom come, even in our generation, even through us, even through me. Lord, keep us praying for revival until you answer as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining me here this evening. And remember, tomorrow evening, um, it, it'll be between 7.30 and 8 o'clock. That, uh, I'll, I'll post it on Facebook and a couple other spots uh, so we can uh, go on with our little bit of uh, study of the relevance of the Bible part four. Uh, again, I'm going to give our website out again. So it's www.americanightstemplars.com. Everybody have a pleasant evening and may God continue to hold you in his arms and his hands and bless you tenfold. Have a good night.